Good evening, guys. Welcome to the podcast. It is Tuesday, July 21st, 2020, and this is episode 18. And I'm going to do something a little bit different with this episode, uh, something I haven't done in the other 17 episodes, and that is kind of focus the podcast on sort of breaking news or something that's, you know, sort of immediately relevant uh, within the last 24 hours, and actually for me within the last several hours. Um, although I think it was announced yesterday at some point, um, maybe late in the day yesterday. Uh, but like I said, just found out about it this morning. And the topic basically is um, sometime this afternoon, in fact, might be going on right now. Um, Joe Biden, uh, of course, running as Democrat candidate uh, for president, is unveiling a uh, or he's giving a speech in which he unveils a $775 billion plan over a 10-year period uh, to pay for a universal uh, sort of child care or daycare. Uh, I think it would be like a universal kindergarten that effectively serves as a daycare for three- and four-year-olds and then um, also pays for in-home elder care. So it kind of, you know, bolsters beginning and end-of-life care uh, in the United States. So, you know, projected price tag is $775 billion over like a decade. So again, just forgive me if I'm sketchy on any details or any, you know, per, you know, peculiarities of this topic. It's something, like I said, I picked up, uh, picked up on it around 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, so very scant information out there about it. And we'll definitely be picking apart uh, Biden's speech later uh, to look for more detail. But the issue, the reason I wanted to make the podcast episode about this uh, is that to pay for the plan, uh, the objective is to roll back or discontinue certain real estate tax breaks. In fact, two of them are featured prominently (laughs) in the book that I wrote and published about a month ago, uh, Wealth for Real. So, you know, without any further ado, let's just kind of look at that and see what the implications might be. Now, again, When this information was released, it was kind of released as a teaser to the speech. So the campaign kind of floated these very generic statements about how the plan would be paid for, because that's the natural question is, where do you get the $775 billion uh, if you're not monetizing debt like with the Federal Reserve and just printing the money, then you got to get it from somewhere. You got to tax somebody. And so this was the answer to where are they going to get it from, okay? So basically... It came down to two items that they were targeting, and both have to do with real estate. Now, a little bit of background there. I'm no tax history expert, but in the little bit that I've read and been exposed to, uh, real estate tax breaks are often on the chopping block when the issue of raising taxes comes up, but they usually survive. They usually don't get changed. Um, It's just... It's just the way it's been, where it's a protected kind of mechanism that has enough wealthy people interested in it that it doesn't change. Now, the big exception to that, uh, for all you tax nerds out there, (laughs) um, uh, and maybe I fall into that category, was the 1986 uh, law passed under Reagan, which really reformed the tax code significantly. I mean, it was, I think, the, the most major update to the tax code prior to the 2017 act passed under the Trump administration. Uh, but anyway, one of the big things in the 86 bill, the, the law that was passed in 86, 
was uh, with the, the use of real estate losses to offset ordinary income. So up till 1986, you know, anybody could buy real estate, suffer losses, and just deduct that dollar for dollar from their income. I mean, it was just like a godsend. Uh, you, you could just stack up real estate and then every dollar you lost, you could chop it off your income and there was no limit or, or no constraint to that. So that changed. And, and, and one of the things it changed into is the subject of this current proposal that Biden's making. So now kind of cutting back to the chase. So the first of the two items that are on the block are those passive losses. Okay, so there's a passive loss rule uh, as it stands today whereby if you are a real estate investor, you, you could be basically three kinds of a real estate investor. You're a passive investor, you're an active investor, or you're a real estate professional. Again, now that may not be the exact terminology in the tax code, please don't hold me to that, but, but there's kind of broad categories of, of who you are and how you get treated tax-wise when it comes to real estate, and those are kind of the three things. Now, just describing them real quickly, if you're a passive investor in real estate where you're just, let's say, contributing funds and doing nothing else, okay, you're just putting money into real estate and you do nothing else with it. You don't make any decisions. You don't run a portfolio. You don't manage anybody. You don't make leasing decisions. You know, more than likely, you're, you're probably investing this money into like a fund or a pool of capital and, and you just have no say in anything. You just wrote a check and you get a check back then you're considered a passive investor and you're not gonna deduct any losses. Okay, you're not gonna be able to deduct any of those real estate losses against your income. Okay, if you're an active real estate investor, you, um, that means that you are involved somewhat in the day-to-day -day or, or the, the, the operational rhythm of the, of the real estate. Like you're approving tenants to be you know, candidates for your rental property or you're telling property managers whether to fix the air conditioner or buy a new one or, you know, things like that. Like you are making fairly significant and strategic decisions. Now you're not necessarily in the minutia every single day taking maintenance calls from tenants, but you are sort of directing your portfolio or your investment on some level, right? And you own at least 10% of the property. Okay, so you either own 10% of the property or if it's multiple properties, you have to have an aggregate equity interest of 10%. So if you owned 100 properties, you have to own 10% of, of the total investment in those 100 properties. Okay, so, so if, if you fall in that category, then you can deduct up to $25,000 per year against your ordinary income. Okay, so you're limited. Uh, to, to the, to the $25,000 ceiling. And as you make more money, it phases out the 25000 So as you, and again, don't quote me, you got to look this up on your own. But the last I checked it, as you approach $150,000 of adjusted gross income or whatever the category is, but the income number is, I believe, 150000 when you cross through that, it phases out altogether. So between like a hundred and 150,000, it starts lowering the 25,000, right? It starts going down from there. And then when you go over 150, you don't get any of, of the benefit, even if you're an active investor. So that's my rudimentary understanding of how it phases. So that's worth a second look. I, I encourage you to look that up. But the point is there's a number that you can deduct and it starts to gradually go away as you make more money, okay? Now, if you're a real estate professional, which is really sort of the gold standard if you can get there, 
and I'll, I'll kind of briefly touch on what makes you one in a second, but if you're a real estate professional, you can deduct every dollar you lose one for one. So if you lost $100,000 that year, you lost 70,000, you lost 22,000, whatever, you can take that number and deduct it from your ordinary income, okay? Now, the issue with being a real estate professional is you have to meet two uh, fairly, I would say, at least somewhat, maybe highly difficult uh, standards. So the first one is real estate has to be more than 50% of your income generating activities. So you have to work in real estate more than half the time, okay? And then you have to, secondly, specifically log at least 750 hours towards, um, towards real estate. And you have to keep records that show what you were doing for those 750 plus hours to substantiate it, okay? Now you see the trick there, like you could look at it like, well, wait, 750 hours, that's like one third of a year, like a man year of 2,000 hours, right? And you could say, well, wait, you know, I could, I could work my job during the day and then I could just log a ton of hours at night or on the weekends piling up the 750 hours and I can claim real estate professional status. And the answer to that is no, you can't or you will get caught if you get audited by the IRS because you fail the 50% test, right? If you're working a job where you put 2,000 hours into the job per year roughly and then you go work the 750 hours, uh, for real estate professional status, yes, you'd, you'd hit the 750 mark, but you'd fail the 50% test because more than 50% of your working hours would have been spent doing a job or some other non-real estate activity. So real estate professional is, is a tricky one to reach. Uh, you have to be really careful how you try to justify that. But if you can get there, it's a huge payoff. Okay, so why did I say all that? So I say all that to say when the Biden um, uh, you know, team, whatever you want to call them, his, sp his spokespeople, said that one of the two tax breaks they're going to roll back is passive loss rules, the question is, for whom? Because one of the things that I read in the two articles that I looked at was that these, these two rollbacks apply to individuals with income over $400,000. Okay, now 400000 a magic number there, um, the highest tax bracket, I believe, for a single person is like four hundred and forty thousand dollars, something like that. It's between four and four hundred and fifty thousand, I think, for a single unmarried individual. Um, so, the bottom line is, if it's four hundred thousand as the cutoff, the question is, who would it apply to? Now, obviously, as I went through those three categories, a passive investor doesn't get passive loss. Uh, carry over, you know, can't, can't bring the, oh, and by the way, just to circle back, if you have more than $25,000 in losses, let's say you're an active investor, you have, let's say, $30,000 in losses, you can claim the 25, you know, assuming you, you make low enough amount of money and you're not phased out, uh, you'd claim the 25 and you can carry the five into the next year. So it doesn't disappear, it just, you have to carry it forward to the next year and add it to that total, okay? So anyway, when the Biden camp says, hey, we're going to target 400K income and higher, well, like I said, a passive investor doesn't get passive losses from real estate, so they're out. It can't be referring to them. Uh, active investors um, might be subject to this rule. The problem is if you're an active investor and you make $400,000 a year or more, you're not even getting the $25,000 
loss offset. I mean, you've been phased out already. So you, so you don't get any, any uh, you know, any losses offsetting to begin with. Okay, so they can't really be referring to them. So the only category that it seems to make sense would be real estate professional. So it would be one of those things where if you happen to reach real estate professional status, which again is, is difficult, and you were enjoying the offset of every dollar of loss towards your ordinary income, uh, or towards your, your adjusted income, or whatever the categories they use, um, that would presumably be rolled back if you were making more than $400,000 a year. So that's the only category of individual it appears to even be applicable to, but, but the interesting thing about it is, real estate professionals, while they're probably making a fairly good sum of money, they're usually not going to be the ultra wealthy. I mean, if you're extremely wealthy, you are not spending 750 plus hours a year with your sleeves rolled up working on real estate portfolios. I mean, you're just, you're beyond that point. You've probably invested in real estate. You know, there's a good chance you've, you've got real estate in your portfolio, but you're not a real estate professional. You're not working on the real estate day in and day out. So to me, it looks like, again, first glance, that this rule targets real estate professionals who are on the lower end of the wealth scale. So they're, let's say, just kind of taking off, just kind of getting their, their, their footing and being a real estate professional. They're starting to enjoy some of the benefits of that. And let's say they are making around, you know, a half million a year, you know, something like that. And they cross that 400K threshold that the Biden team announced. They would lose the benefit of this, uh, of this loss offset rule. Okay, so it would, you know, somebody who is, again, fairly well off, but not necessarily rich, but maybe headed in that direction, would have their knees kind of cut out from under them by this because they wouldn't be able to enjoy the very reason that you want to be a real estate professional. I mean, the whole point from a tax perspective of being a real estate professional is to carry over that loss dollar for dollar. Okay, so that was the first item. So we kind of covered that, I think, fairly comprehensively. So, so the second thing which I think has larger, longer-term implications were they to do this, um, is, and again, they didn't say exactly what they would do with this, but they said that the 1031 exchange rule uh, would be the second item that would be rolled back for real estate investors. Now, backing up real quick, the 1031 exchange, if you guys don't know, is basically, it's, it refers to Internal Revenue Code Section 1031, and that part of the tax code basically lays out the rules for exchanging one property or properties for what they call a like-kind investment in other property. And when you do that exchange, it's not like you sold the first set of properties and have to pay a capital gains tax on it. It's a tax-free event. So let's say, for example, and by the way, like-kind is very liberal. Okay, so let's say I own just a raw piece of land. Okay, I bought a piece of land. It's not producing any income for me. You know, I'm tired of waiting on it, appreciating, and I just want to go ahead and convert it into something that produces cash flow. So I take the raw piece of land and I sell it to a speculator, right, who buys that land for me. And I identify, let's say, a portfolio of 10 rental properties that I want to do my 1031 exchange for. So I line up a buyer for the land. I essentially sell, quote unquote, the land to that buyer. The money I make from it is, is put into sort of an escrow type of account uh, by an intermediary. 
the intermediary then uses those funds to buy uh, the 10 rental properties for me and acquire the new, you know, basically the new uh, asset and no tax is paid. There's no taxable event there. Okay. Now, normally, if I just went and sold the land to somebody, I'd make money, pay tax on it, take the remainder, and then go buy my properties, you know, my 10 rentals or whatever. But with a 1031 exchange, I can move from the land to the rentals without ever paying any tax. Okay, and this is a very powerful real estate wealth building strategy that, you know, it's accessible to anybody. I mean, anybody can do it, uh, but, you know, obviously, I mean, there's some moving parts and you have to follow the rules and you should definitely hire advisors or be working with people who know what they're doing. I mean, you, I think you have to hire a qualified intermediary or you, you can't even get off the ground on this sort of thing. But, but the point is, this is a strategy that uh, real estate investors, you know, wealthy or just beginning, have employed to change the nature of their portfolio to acquire new or different assets to strengthen or grow their portfolio without ever having to trigger taxable events. You know, selling one piece of property, collecting the cash, paying the tax, and then moving the remaining cash into the new property. You don't have to go through that, uh, you know, that mechanism to do that. You can use a 1031 exchange and you can basically swap the properties out without ever paying any tax. Now, eventually down the line, and by the way, there's some fine print there, guys. If, if you know, you know, if you basically, uh, I, th- I think if you, if you make any money off the sale, like if there's some differential between what you're, what, you know, like whatever you sold the first property for and you buy the next set of properties, if there's money left over, you have to pay tax on that. So basically, usually what you want to do is you want to acquire in the 1031 exchange something equally or more expensive uh, than whatever you, you uh, sold. Okay, to avoid that little that little differential there that you'd have to pay tax on, but it's not the only fine print. If you're going to do a 1031 exchange, you know, don't take this podcast as gospel. Like, look up the process. Like I said, it's fairly complicated just from a timing perspective. Uh, you know, in terms of like when you have to identify the new properties that you're going after and how long you have to close them. I mean, I'll spend the whole podcast probably talking about 1031 exchanges, and it will come up often. Uh, as I go along. But just for the sake of this argument, know that it's an intricate process. You need an intermediary to guide you. But the ultimate objective is to unload one property or properties for others without triggering taxes. So the question is, when Biden camp says, hey, we're going to target that real estate tax break for people making over 400000 what do they mean? Is it, is it coming out of the tax code altogether? Is it, are they putting some kind of constraint on it? Are they putting some kind of limit on it? I mean, as it's written today, you can do as many 1031 exchanges as you want. I mean, you can do them, you know, until you die and you can pass the property on to the next generation and they can keep doing 1031 exchanges as long as nobody outright sells the property, then nobody's paying tax on it, right? So, so the issue there, I think detractors of this policy have is real estate is changing hands, ownership is changing hands, but no taxes are being paid. Okay, so that's kind of the, the rub against it. But, um, but anyway, so, so this is definitely, you, you know, when I write in my book, and you'll, you'll see this cropping up elsewhere too, not just in the book. When I talk about why real estate is so powerful for building long-term generational wealth, there's basically two principles that that rests heavily upon. And one of them is 1031 exchanges. The other one is what, what's called stepped-up basis 
again, I won't go into a tremendous amount of detail on that, but stepped up basis basically means, you know, if I buy a rental property for 100K today, and when I die, you know, 30, 40 years from now, it's worth 600K. When I hand that property off to my son, for example, and he takes it under his possession from my estate, he doesn't take it at 100K where I bought it. He takes it at its market value when it got handed off to him. So it'd be assessed as like, okay, you know, here's the property to my son and it's worth $600,000. So now he gets the property as if it was 600K, not the 100K I paid for it. So in other words, there's a $500,000 gain there, right? In the property, the 100 to 600, that I didn't have to pay tax on and he doesn't have to pay tax on. He just picks up the property at the new market value. He can hold it for his lifetime you know, let's say 80 years later, he passes it on and it goes from 600K to 6 million. It goes to his children or child at 6 million. You see, so it it just keeps going to the next generation at the market value that it passed over. Okay, so between 1031 exchanges and stepped up basis, you could see how, you know, it just takes, you know, you get one generation sort of compiling real estate assets. And then when they hand them off to the second generation, you know, they're just, they're off and running. They can just start piling up more assets on top of those assets. They're, they get very favorable or, or no tax treatment at all. I mean, it's, you know, in some cases, it's not even favorable. It's just there's no taxes whatsoever. And so the accumulation is, is greased. It's facilitated over generations where properties can just be accumulated or you changed over to one huge property or whatever. You have to do a 1031. Um, and generation after generation can just literally keep growing and growing and growing the portfolio, enjoying the cash flow from it, uh, enjoying the leverage that it brings. You know, eventually, you know, you can really do some significant borrowing against those properties. Um, so it really kind of starts with that first generation, and then they just kind of, you know, hand off to the next, and they keep growing it and building it. So, um, so anyway, guys, just you know, again, not to be. Uh, to knee-jerk about this. I mean, it'd be nice if I'd had a little bit more time to, to see exactly what Biden says today. Um, but I'm definitely planning to, uh, you know, watch his speech or look at a copy of it or whatever. And uh, we'll revisit some of this on the podcast uh, in, a, in a future episode. I mean, not long from now, I'll probably do a, do a follow-up on this. But it's very worth, you know, if you're interested in real estate, if you're doing real estate, if you have real estate, you have to keep an eye on this ball and see how or if this affects you. Um, I mean, something like this would usually not have much chance of becoming law unless, you know, you know, the presidency, the House of Representatives, and the Senate were all controlled by the same party. And even then it may not go through. But, but I would presume that the only chance something like this would have is if all three of those aligned with each other. So, you know, certainly there are issues in our country and in our economy with providing the kind of care that Biden's trying to address. You know, the the beginning of life, the end of life, we have significant economic challenges and problems in those areas. And so, you know, in some respects, I mean, it's it's an area that needs to be addressed. I mean, the question, the debate will be, what's the best way to do it? Uh, So this is the way they've come up with, and it'll just be interesting to see how the debate proceeds from there. Uh, but it's not to diminish these problems. These are real, significant, serious economic burdens uh, that families have in this country right now. And the question is how to best deal with it 
Um, and so, like I said, once again, as it often uh, happens, these real estate tax breaks, uh, you sort of in general, I mean, they change each time, I think. But in this case, 1031 and passive loss have come back on the table uh, as potential candidates for elimination. But I really, you know, I think kind of my finishing point is I really wonder how much you really make from doing that. I mean, if you take passive losses away from real estate professionals, it's a very narrow segment of society that's enjoying that benefit and that really falls into that into that IRS category of being a real estate professional. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see some numbers on it, but I don't think it's going to be a very high number. And then as far as the 1031 exchanges go, I, I mean, there's probably more money to be made there but, you know, if you're a super rich individual, you know, billions to your name, hundreds of millions, you probably have a team of individuals who've already begun figuring out how to get around this, you know, or how to mitigate this issue. So, again, that kind of tamps down the amount of revenue that it can generate. So uh, definitely excited to see where this goes and what the next, you know, the next level of detail is on this. And I'll definitely update you guys here uh, when that happens. So once again, appreciate you guys listening. Appreciate you guys checking in on the podcast, sharing it, starting to get a little momentum on the, um, on the number of plays in the audience. So definitely, definitely thanks uh, to all of you for that. Uh, you can follow me at CJ Anastasio on Twitter, uh, at Christopher Anastasio LLC on Facebook, or you can jump over to the uh, Wealth for Real accounts um, at Wealth underscore for underscore real on Twitter, at Wealth underscore for real on Instagram, and at Wealth for Real on Facebook. So thanks again, guys. Have a great day, and uh, we'll check back with you again soon. Bye-bye.